All right, if you've got a Bible, we are going to be continuing in Luke chapter 18. We've been walking through. This is actually the 54th sermon in the book of Luke. We will finish it up this year, I promise. At the end of uh, our worship gathering this morning, we are going to sing Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace is familiar to many of us. A lot of you probably even know the story. I'm going to tell a little bit. But uh, it was written in 1779 by a guy named John Newton. Now, John Newton, John Newton was an unlikely convert to Christianity. In your bulletin on the sermon guide, where I always give resources, you'll see in the resource section a book recommended by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield is an unlikely convert to Christianity. See, John Newton was a notorious sailor on a slave ship. He eventually became a captain of a slave ship. And he was known to be one of the most debased, just one of the most um, drunken, foul-mouthed, you know, whore, I mean, just, he was known to be a true sailor, like in the context that we use that, you know, talking like a sailor. That was him. He was far far outside of the way of Christ. And he, uh, as a slave ship sailor, and then later a captain, would take people who'd been kidnapped in Africa and put onto the boat, treated as worse than cattle, sail across and put on the auction blocks in the Americas. He eventually became a Christian. After being saved from a storm physically, he eventually became a Christian. He left the slave trading industry. He became a pastor. He worked with William Wilberforce to help end the slave trading industry in Britain, right? the trafficking of humans in Britain. And he wound up writing a multitude of hymns, including Amazing Grace. He was a friend of many other hymn writers, William Cowper, one of my favorites, the only hymns you can read about. And he wrote... Grace that would save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now and found was blind, but now I see. He was an unlikely convert to Christianity. Now, much more contemporary, we've got Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield uh, is just in the last few decades. She's still alive today. You can hear her speak. You can read her books. But just reading off the back of the book that I've listed for you in the resources, here's what it says about Rosaria. Rosaria, by the standards of many was living a very good life. She had a tenured position at a large university in a field for which she cared deeply. She was an English professor at either Princeton or Syracuse. I can't remember. She owned two homes with her partner. She was a committed lesbian in which they provided hospitality to students and activists that were looking to make a difference in the world. In the community, Rosaria was involved in volunteer work. At the university, she was a respected advisor of students and her department's curriculum. Then in her late 30s, Rosaria encountered something that turned her world upside down. The idea that Christianity, a religion she had regarded as problematic and sometimes downright damaging, might be right about who God was. That idea seemed to fly in the face of the people and causes that she most loved. What follows is a story of what she describes as a train wreck at the hand of the supernatural. These are her secret thoughts about those events. 
written as only a reflective English professor could. And so John Newton, Rosaria Butterfield, the Apostle Paul, many of us in this room unlikely converts to Christianity. In our text that we've got, that, that Tedra read just a few minutes ago, we've got two unlikely converts to Christianity. One who's physically blind, one who is spiritually blind. Both are hated, both are outcast, but Christ invaded both of their lives and they both came to know Christ, to see Jesus. That is, recognize Him for who He truly is. God incarnate, the long-awaited promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so this morning, as we take a look at the grace of God in the life in the lives of these two unlikely converts, it's my prayer that we would see Jesus. That those of us who are believers, we have repented and trusted Christ, that we'd be reminded of His grace and His mercy that He's given to us. And those of us who have not yet trusted Christ, aren't there yet, that maybe today would be the day of salvation, that you would see Jesus for who He truly is. That His arms are open wide and He's not just one philosophical idea amongst many. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. That's what He said. That We would see Him through eyes of faith. And so that's my prayer for us this morning. The way we're going to make our way through this is pretty simple. We're going to go, we're going to go through it first looking at two, two overriding truths. One is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And so we're going to go through the blind beggar and Zacchaeus and then we're going to look at the second truth, that salvation leads to transformation. Always. Always. And we'll go back through the life of the blind beggar and Zacchaeus and look at how that fleshes out as well. So that's how we're going to break this down. We'll pick it up in verse 31 just to kind of frame up what's going on. So look at verse 31 with me. Luke chapter 18. Should be a Bible around you somewhere. Grab that and look uh, look on with. If you're not familiar with the Bible, the big bold numbers are the chapters and the little numbers are the verses. So Luke 18, verse 31, and taking the 12, he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, going up because they're near, near Jericho, which is about 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above, so you've got a 3,300 foot ascent. Going up to, Jer to Jericho, uh, to Jerusalem, they're in Jericho. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Now, this is the third time Jesus has just plainly predicted his death and his resurrection. But disciples still don't get it. Still, don't have, still can't contemplate of a Messiah dying. They wanted a geopolitical Messiah in that day. Kingdom come in that moment. They could not contemplate the idea of a suffering servant and the conquering king being the same person. 
But beyond that, I want you to see like the basic truth of Christianity is right here. If you were here and you were just exploring the ideas of Christianity, the central truth is right here. Jesus Christ came to this world to die. That's why he came. His purpose in living was to live a perfect life that we haven't, but that God demands, and to die as an atonement for our sin. That's why he came. It's what he's constantly talking about, constantly explaining that he would die as a substitute for our sins in our place to pay for our sins against a holy God, whereby we could be made right with God, not on the basis of anything we do, but on the basis of what Jesus did for us. Because God demands perfection, and we will never attain that. So Jesus attained it for us and gives it to us. Yet our sin deserves punishment, and God is just. It must be punished, and Jesus takes our punishment for us. This is the central truth of Christianity. He rises on the third day in victory over sin and death. And so understand well, Jesus' life was not tragically cut short in his early, early 30s. This is why he came. And as he's walking to Jerusalem, he knows that's where he's going. He's going to seek and save the lost through his life and death. And resurrection. So that's number one in our notes. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This is 19, chapter 19, verse 10 that Ted read a little while ago. And he came to seek and save the lost, the blind beggars of the world, and the Zacchaeuses of the world. And so we're going to make our way through both of these guys. First, the blind beggar. And so verse 35, we've got a guy who's well known in the sense that he's seen always begging around Jericho. This is nothing new. He's always on the roadside begging. He's, he's blind. And in that culture, that meant you're unemployed. That meant that you were homeless. You have no food, no job, no place to live. No money. And so day after day, he's begging for help. And so here's a guy he probably hasn't shaved in a long, long time. Scraggly hair. Smelly. Filthy. Broken. People would probably rather him just die off because he makes the town look bad. You walk around downtown and there's these homeless people everywhere. and Man, they just make the town look bad. We'd rather this blind beggar just fade off the scene and get out. And I don't want to be around him. I don't want to see him. It makes me uncomfortable. That's who this guy is. And he knows that Passover is coming. And he knows that thousands of people are going to be trekking to Jerusalem through Jericho. And so... Maybe he leaves where he normally begs and he goes to this thoroughfare because he knows, hey, there's no better person to beg from than religious people going to a festival. So he gets out there and he's in a strategic location. And people are passing by and people are passing by. In verse 36, hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth, is passing by. And amazingly, even though all they told him was a geographical location, Jesus of Nazareth, he starts crying out a different name at Jesus. Look at it in verse 38. And he cried out, Jesus, 
Son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And so again, all they said was Jesus of Nazareth, but this blind beggar recognized him as the son of David, which is a messianic title. Showing that he's the fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7, the descendant of King David who will reign on the throne forever and ever and ever. And so amazingly, this physically blind man had better spiritual sight than Jesus' own disciples. How? How did he know this? Well, obviously, it's God who gives faith. Ephesians 2, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not, a, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So God had given him faith, but also maybe word had reached him about Jesus' miracles, about Jesus' teaching. Maybe he'd heard the story of Jesus that Luke records in chapter 4, where he's in the synagogue in Nazareth, and he opens up the scroll in the book of Isaiah to chapter 61, and he reads it. It's just the ultimate drop mic moment. He reads it and drops mic. This has been fulfilled in your hearing today. And here's what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so maybe he had heard all of this. God had given him the gift of faith because faith is a gift. And so this man in desperate faith cries out, Son of David, have mercy on me, Son of David. And in the midst of the pandemonium of the crowd going by, Jesus hears him and stops. I can't help but imagine, because this is how I read Scripture, with very, you know, my imagination is going as I'm reading Scripture, and I just kind of picture it like when Forrest Gump is giving a speech in D.C., and, and, and at the end of it, Jenny starts, Forrest! Forrest! Right? That's like the blind beggar here. He is shouting. crowd goes silent. And Jesus stops. He hears him. And Jesus turns to him. And I want you to see the graciousness of our Savior here because, remember, He's on a mission. He's going to Jerusalem where He's going to die for the sins of the world. Nothing can stop Him from completing this mission. Nothing. But He stops for this blind beggar. He stops for you and me when we call. He's gracious. He cried for mercy. Isn't that what we all need? Mercy? And Jesus is the only one who can give it. And so we cry out for mercy. Will you ask Him for mercy? He'll stop. He'll listen. And so ask Him. Ask Him to help you understand who He is. And I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know what circumstantial things are going on. I don't know what felt needs you may have going on in your life. But I do want you to see that our felt needs that come into our lives, in a lot of ways, God uses those to just soften us up to realize that we need something more. To realize that we have a deeper 
deep-seated need. To see that we are not self-sufficient, that we are not invulnerable, that we need mercy. And not just circumstantial mercy, but eternal mercy. Not just mercy right in the here and now, but mercy and grace from God for our souls for eternity. And Jesus will give it. Friends, He will give it. Ask Him to give it to you. Ask Him. He will give it. He came to seek and save the lost. Lost being separated from God. And that's all of us who do not know Jesus. And He will give mercy. That's why He came. To seek and save the lost. So that's the blind beggar. Let's look at Zacchaeus. Let's look at Zacchaeus real quick. Now, to get the reality, how many of you know the little Zacchaeus song? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he, right? Okay. We need to throw that away for a minute. Okay? That is not going to help us understand what is going on here at all. What we're trying to see here is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And if we just think about the wee little man, the wee little man, climbed up the sycamore tree for the word he wanted to see, that makes him just this little sympathetic person, you know, a little cute, little cutesy guy. This dude was a monster. An absolute terror of a person. I would, in my flesh, honestly have trouble not hating him. And this is a guy who had purchased the right from Rome, an occupying force, to raise taxes from among his own people. And so the way that worked is that Rome would sell being a tax collector to the highest bidder. And then once you got that, Rome would say, hey, here's how, many, how much taxes we need you to raise Anything over and above that is yours. And so he has the entire Roman army at his backing to go out. He sets his own salary to go out and raise as much money as he wants. And all Rome cares is that they give to Rome what they need and whatever he wants, he can do however he wants to do it. And so and he's doing this to his own people. It'd be the equivalent of your neighbor raising taxes, taking money from you to pay for an occupying force that was responsible for the murder and rape and pillaging of our country. That's who the tax collectors were, and he's a chief tax collector, so he's like the overlord of this cartel. And so this would be a guy today, I've talked about this a couple weeks ago, who'd be in the same category as those who deal drugs to kids. Those who kidnap and traffic people as sex slaves. Those who are the alt-right nationalists with their evil racist hatred. Or abortion doctors who love to work overtime because they love their job so much. That's this guy. He's a horrible man. Corrupt, crooked, evil, oppressive. Just the complete opposite of Jesus' great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul. Which is the Jewish Shema through Deuteronomy 6. And then Jesus added to it, and love your neighbor as yourself. Complete opposite of that. That's Zacchaeus. He may be small in stature, but he is a monster of a person. Filthy rich, sinful, oppressive overlord. And I want you to recall, though, the rich ruler from two weeks ago, because Jesus puts them kind of as a comparison. Rich ruler, he says, Jesus explains how it is harder for a rich man to get into heaven than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. 
And the disciples hear that, they're like, well, who can be saved then? And the, Jesus says, well, with man it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. We're about to see the God of possibility go to work here because we're going to see a camel go through the eye of a needle as Zacchaeus comes to Christ. And so look at verse 1 with me. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. Again, don't know why I see this, but I see Danny DeVito. <laughs> so you got these beady little eyes, you know, small stature, Danny DeVito here. And he's rich and he's a chief, so he's got on really fancy robes. And so just picture a really expensive, you know, $2,000, $5,000, suit. He's wearing this suit around. And Danny DeVito, one, doesn't run. Two, he doesn't climb trees. And three, he definitely doesn't do it in a suit. But here, he does. Verse four. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Again, it's just kind of fun. There's Danny DeVito in his suit, in a tree. So he hurried down and came, so he hurried and came down, and received him as Jesus joyfully. He received him joyfully. He's happy. He's happy that Jesus is there. And what I want you to notice here, though, is back in verse 5. Look at this. Jesus calls him by name. Jesus calls him by name. Supernaturally. Knows his name. Maybe he'd heard of him. Maybe just supernaturally, but... This is how salvation works. Jesus calls you by name. I'm not talking audibly, but still, He starts calling. You start to feel that tug in your heart that something's going on. There's something more. There's something pulling me outside of myself. There's something supernatural going on. And like love, you can't touch it. You can't explain it, but it's there. This is Jesus calling you. And He's called billions and billions of people. Maybe today he's calling you. Maybe you're here, you're not a Christian. You're hearing about Christianity and you're starting to feel this swirl in your heart and he's starting to call you. Trust him. Give your heart to him. Trust him by faith. Receive him as your Lord and as your Savior and begin to follow him. It's a volitional decision. Confess him as God in the flesh and begin to follow him. Receive His gift, what He did for you on the cross, as what makes you right with God. Not what you do. And so Jesus calls Zacchaeus. And, and again, notice Jesus is going after the outsider. He's going after the outsider, not the insiders. This guy is hated. Hated. But Jesus is going to dine with him. Jesus is making him his friend. And so if you feel that way this morning, that you are an outsider... This Savior of whom we're speaking is so kind to include you. He's calling you into his family. I mean, Christianity is, is an exclusive thing, right? 
All roads do not lead to the top. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. So it's not Buddhism one way, Islam one way, um, just you know, general spirituality one way, do more good than bad. No, no, no. Jesus is the only way. So it's an exclusive thing. Theologians talk about the exclusivity of the gospel. So it's an exclusive thing. But it is totally inclusive of anybody who will believe. There are no prerequisites to the gospel. The blind beggar did not do anything before Jesus saves him. The Zacchaeus here doesn't do anything before Jesus sees him in a tree and calls him. No pre- prerequisites. None. But do we live that way? Do we look at others as if there's a prerequisite they must meet before they can become a Christian? They need to stop acting that way. They need to stop doing that. Can't share the gospel with them until they do that. Do, do we share the message of Christ that way? Do we often latch our culture to the gospel Accept this, my way of doing life, my way of dressing, my way of music, my, all that's part of it. The gospel, the gospel. Don't latch your preferences to the gospel. We're evangelizing not for our culture, but for Christ. For the glory of Christ and for the good of our fellow man. Jesus is the only way to true forgiveness and freedom Vertical reconciliation that then works out in horizontal reconciliation. I mean, just straightforward. If there was no gospel, why not be a racist? If there's no gospel, why not be that way? If Darwin is right, and everything's just, you know, Darwinian evolution, then that necessarily means that there are some who are stronger than others and there are some races then that would be stronger than others. That is what Darwin, that is the logical outflow of Darwinian evolution. One race is going to be stronger and going to subjugate the other survival of the fittest. But this is antithetical to the gospel. But it is the logical outflow of Darwinian evolution. So don't be a Darwinian. Be a Christian. The gospel is the only thing that can kill this divide of racism. The only thing. Everything else is Band-Aids. You don't put Band-Aids, uh, my buddy Eric will know this, you don't put Band-Aids on, on measles. You've got to get in the bloodstream to deal with measles. Got to get in our hearts. And so Jesus invites himself over for a dinner party. Hey, I'm coming to your house today. I've got like 13 people that are coming too. Is that okay? It's going to be a big party. You look rich. You'll be all right. And to go and dine in this culture with someone like this is the taboo of all taboos. And Jesus doesn't care about taboos. He cares about seeking and saving the law. So he goes into Zacchaeus' house. And the crowd begins to grumble. Look at verse 7 there of chapter 19. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Do you know why they grumbled? They grumbled because they are so much like us. Like me. I am 
an all-star at seeing other people's sins. But I am horrible at seeing my own. That's all of us. He's a sinner, but they don't see their own. And I, it makes me wonder, as I was, who would we, who would I grumble over if I saw them come to Christ? Who would I grumble over? But Jesus came to seek and save the lost. No prerequisites, anyone who would believe. And so, friend, there, there, there is no one outside of the grace of God. There is no sin that you have committed or ever could commit that will bar you from a relationship with Christ. He stands willing and ready to save. So repent and believe. It's a volitional decision. Repent meaning you turn away from your sin, from your idols, and you turn to Christ and believe. You trust in Him and Him alone to be what makes you right with God. Not your own standard of morality that you try to live up to. But Christ. And so Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Anyone who believed, no prerequisites, okay? No prerequisites. But, and this is number two in our notes, salvation always leads to transformation. Salvation always leads to transformation. So everybody listen real closely. This is going to be a lot quicker in this part. But Christianity is not do whatever you want to do. God will forgive you. Keep doing whatever you want to do. And God will keep on forgiving you. That's not Christianity. Christianity is this. Do whatever you want to do. God will forgive you. You get saved. You get changed. And you don't want to do those things anymore. You won't just keep going back. You may slip. You may fall. But categorically, you've been changed. Something has happened deep inside of you that changes you. And the Bible calls this being born again. And you become a new person and you have a new power in you to resist sin, the Holy Spirit. And you have a new Lord of your life, Jesus Christ. And you have a new authority in your life, the Bible. And you have a new nature and you have new desires and you want to be like Jesus. Not to get His love and forgiveness, but because it's already been given to you. And so change is what happens. It starts the day you become a Christian and it keeps going on to the day you drop and go to your reward. And so all the people you meet at church, and I'm not talking slip-ups, but you're still striving. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about all those people you meet at a church who categorically live their lives no different than anybody else. They are lost and self-deceived. And they're confusing people about the gospel of Christ. And what it means to be a follower of Christ. They anti-evangelize people. That's why Jesus has given the keys of the kingdom to the church. That they might be able to say, we can't vouch for that guy. He's got to be excluded from being called a Christian. And so there's no prerequisites to becoming a Christian. But after conversion, we are changed. I mean, again, we are going to slip and we're going to fall. Sometimes egregiously. But if categorically there is no change at all, the Bible says there's been no conversion. 
And so that may be something we need to wrestle with. Maybe you had an emotional moment. Maybe you had a manipulated moment. But conversion does bring change. I mean, just look at our two guys this morning. Look at 1843 with the blind beggar. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So he begins following him. All right. Now, in the New Testament, we have four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts uh, of the life of Jesus written by eyewitnesses or close associates of an eyewitness. Luke is not an eyewitness. He's a Gentile, but he became a great friend of Paul. And Paul explained to him the gospel, and he wants to write a historic uh, recollection of it for a guy named Theophilus. You can read about that in the first four verses of the book, chapter 1. But you've got these four accounts of Christ's life that supplement one another. And they pick up on different details in the Gospels. And in the book of Mark, the blind man who is healed here, we actually get his name. And his name is Bartimaeus. We'll call him Bart. So we got Bart here. And church historians think that, I mean, he immediately starts following Jesus. It's what it tells us here, even in Luke. And his church historians, this is outside of the Bible here, okay? So it's not the same authority as the Scripture. But historians think that the reason that Mark gives us this name is because Bart just becomes this beast of a follower of Christ. They're like, at this very moment, his eyes are open. He begins following Jesus right then. And so they think he like jumped into his entourage at that moment. And folks were like, who's the smelly hippie with the dreads? And I'm like, oh, that's Bart. Don't that's Bart. You know, he was lost, but now he was blind, but now he can see. And so history says that he followed him to Jerusalem, and they followed him around for a week. And then with eyes that now worked, he watched his Savior be slaughtered. And then three days later, Jesus comes back to life, and there's Bart. Jesus is around for 40 days and he gets ready to ascend. He goes to the mountain. He gives a great commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And more than likely, there's Bart. Real Christians are changed. Salvation leads to transformation. His life was changed. And he followed Jesus and he preached about Jesus and he witnessed about Jesus and he walked with Jesus. Let's look at our boy Zacchaeus. He becomes a Christian. What does he do? Chapter 19, verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood, so this is public, and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. Half of everything. Giving that away to the poor. So that's one thing. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, which he had, Major Lee, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus says to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. Not salvation's come because he's doing this. Salvation has come because, like Abraham, he has exercised faith, and that faith has now led to works. Because that's the outflow. Salvation leads to transformation. Your life is 
changed. Zacchaeus was a new man with new desires, new motives, new loves, and his life was reoriented. He became a man of generosity. A man who not only gave back all that he sold, but gave back more as a blessing and as a gift. He was changed. How many of you know that Sam Houston, uh, uh, you know, Texas renowned, was actually originally a Tennessean? Oh, yeah. yeah. Sam Houston in no way, shape, or form was a, acted in any way like a Christian. But near the end of his life, he realized the error of his ways and he repented and he trusted Christ. And after his baptism, he wanted to begin paying half of the pastor's salary. And when they asked him why, he said, because when I was baptized, my wallet was baptized as well. Christ changes us. He reorients us. We stop the death grip on material things and we loosen up. Zacchaeus gave away half. Half. Now, for some of us, if I gave away half, I'm going to jail for like fraud, like all kinds of loans. I mean, I just I can't pay anything. They're going to take my house. They're going to take. I can't do that. But some of you might can. And the, the, the thing is not to give away a certain, it's be generous. Everything is God's. Everything is God's. And he's entrusted to you a little bit to steward. So steward it well. We're changed. Zacchaeus was changed. God changes us. That's Christianity. You meet Jesus, you get changed, you never recover from that. You can't shut up talking about him. You get changed, you keep on getting changed more and more and more into the image of Christ to the day you go home to the Lord. That's what following Jesus is about. That's like the simplest definition of a Christian. What is a, what is a Christian? It's someone who follows Christ. They go where Christ goes. They do what Christ does. They love what Christ loves. They hate what Christ hates. And so these are simple but profound lessons from these two unlikely converts. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And salvation leads to transformation. And so he called and he changed Bartimaeus. He called and he changed Zacchaeus. He called and he changed John Newton. He called and he changed Rosaria Butterfield. He called and he changed the Apostle Paul. He called and he changed Everyone in here who is a Christian. But salvation leads to transformation. And so is he calling you today? If you are a believer, is he changing you today? And in what ways? How does he want to transform you? The rich young ruler would not give up his stuff in order to follow Jesus. Zacchaeus gives up his stuff in order to follow Jesus? Is there anything that you won't give up in order to follow Jesus? We're going to take the word suffer in just a minute. And in those moments as we prepare for that, I encourage you to pray and ask the Lord for mercy and ask the Lord to reveal to you those areas of His life, of your life that He wants to transform. Ask Him to give you eyes to see these things. We are so prone to see the sins of others, but slow to see our own. 
Ask him to help you see your own. To see the log. We've got all of them. All of us have logs. Let's pray. And as we pray, if the, those who are going to be serving would go ahead and make their way down here. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these simple truths that you are so kind to send Jesus to seek and save the lost. That is us. And that when you save us, you don't leave us alone. You change us and you make us new people. And so, Father, help us to live out in practice what you have made us by position, putting us into the family of God. As we prepare to receive the Lord's Supper, would you work in our hearts and our minds and show us, show us those things that we value more than you, those things that, those idols of our heart, those habits, beliefs that are not in keeping with the gospel, in keeping with your word, and help us to change. Help us to be serious about it and willing to talk about it with others and get those who would help us fight and strive and walk. And let us be patient with one another. Change is a lifelong process. It doesn't happen overnight. And we walk patiently, arm in arm with one another. So work in us, God, right now, even as we prepare for this holy, holy time. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.